All right, the book of Jeremiah. The goal is to finish a whole chapter tonight. We're going to do our very best. We're going to see. All right, this morning we uh, worked on, hang on if I can find the actual thing that we worked on. Here we go. We worked on, we started in Jeremiah chapter 2. We looked at Jeremiah 2.19, Jeremiah 2.20-23, Jeremiah 2.23, Jeremiah 2.24-26, Jeremiah 2.26, Jeremiah 2.30, Jeremiah 2.32, and chapter 3, verses 1-5. through We did all of that in the first hour. The reason we did all of that in the first hour is because last Sunday we spent two hours looking at the different types of of the figurative language, the different figures of speech found in the book of Jeremiah, or just found in the Bible in general, but giving everyone the assignment to go through the book of Jeremiah and locate all of those different figures, uh, that figurative language. So what we did is because we spent two hours on that, right here at the very beginning of the book of Jeremiah, they immediately, figurative language is being used. Very, I mean, it does not take long, anyone reading it. So that's why I waited to, everyone was supposed to have already been, you know, reading, you know, chapters one through six, one through seven. And I knew right there in the middle of that was the time to say, hey, here's all the different figurative language because you would have already recognized it and seen it. And then you could be able to identify the different types. So we immediately this morning spent an hour working on this. So here is what we found. God, utilizing figurative language, describes Judah and Israel in different ways. He described them as backsliders in chapter 2, verse 19, right? We talked a little bit about what that meant. He described them as a vine in chapter 2, verses basically 20 through 23. He referred to them as a fast camel in chapter 2, verse 23. He referred to them as a donkey in heat, chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. Uh, Kind of an ashamed thief in chapter 2, verse 26. A destroying lion is at least related to how they treated the prophets. Then I had stated on the podcast, and I wrote it in my notes, as they described them as a forgetful woman, which is not completely accurate. Really, he uses the uh, the idea that there are women who will not forget these types of things, but Judah and Israel has forgotten God, right? So we just refer to them as being forgetful. Um, I still wanted to use the fact that he utilizes the women as kind of an illustration, kind of in a figurative way. Then chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, he describes them as a harlot, an adulterous harlot because they had committed spiritual adultery, right? And so we talked about how bad of condition they were, how much that they had left God, they had gone after that which was of no profit, they had pursued that which is vain and become vain, they had dug it, they had tried to dig out basically, they had turned from the fountain of living water to dig out wells that could not hold water, and we just saw how bad their spiritual condition was. Because their spiritual condition was so bad, what did God do to Israel? We talked about this this morning in the second hour. He he got a divorce from them. He gave them a bill of divorcement. He got a divorce from Israel. Now remember, this is all figurative language. And we talked about what's the dangers of figurative language. We talked about it this morning. You can take it so far that you end up creating almost a, 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 a... a theology on your own. So we got to be careful. And we talked about the dangers of saying God got a divorce, right? I mean, the Bible says it, but then you're like, wait a minute. 
So our God is a divorced God? And well, then he brought him back. And then wait, the church is referred to as a bride. So then is God a divorce? Did he get divorced and get remarried? Did he get divorced? Does he have two wives? Like you start, you see all the problems that can create. And so simply put, the figurative language is to describe what? That God's relationship with Israel is as a husband and a wife. He uses that illustration because when they go pursue idols, then that can be, in an illustrative way, be described as what? Spiritual adultery, as adultery, right? Showing their unfaithfulness. Using that figurative language, we can all relate to that, right? We can relate to that. We can understand that. We can see the the seriousness of it. And we know that because, according to Deuteronomy 24, if they put away their wives, what were they not to do? Not to take them back. That would defile the land. So then, we're, so then that leads Bible scholars for a very long time to go, well, wait a minute. If God brought Israel back, then he would be defiling the land. How does this work? And remember, the only way I can understand it, and the only thing that makes sense, is what does the law always demand? A perfection that nobody can fulfill, that we're all condemned by it. So by saying I put a divorcement, a bill of divorcement would almost leave Israel what kind of a condition? Hopeless. Well, then we can't be brought back. But not long after he said he gave him a bill of divorcement, he said, return to me, and he called himself their husband. Remember? And you're like, well, wait a minute. I thought you just divorced them demonstrating that Yah put them away and just putting them away dealt with their going into captivity, but then he's ultimately going to bring them back. He's ultimately going to bring them back. And we talked about all Israel being saved, all the implications that has to do with eschatology. And we made it all the way through chapter three. All right. So tonight is chapter four. But remember, 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 we're not trying to do this in a necessarily a typical, normal, verse-by-verse way, all right? And one of the reasons we're not doing this in a typical verse-by-verse way is for what practical reason? Okay, well, that Jeremiah is a book that, if, you, if you're in a church that goes verse-by-verse through Jeremiah, it's probably going to be, well, if it's truly verse-by-verse, it's going to be a disaster. The book is a complicated, convoluted mess, Right? It's not in chronological order. You've got the major issues between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. You've got the, the, those two don't even agree. You've got all kinds. And you've got all the different genres of literature. You've got poetry. You've got prophecy. You've got historical narrative. It's a mess. And when, you, when it's so convoluted, the more you get into it, the more you get into it, the less you begin to see what? Of the overall picture. So I'm trying to not get into it so that we can maintain some larger picture, right? Someone sent me a, a novel of trying to work out the whole thing about the divorce uh, in, in, in Jeremiah and God divorce. And I do appreciate it, but and I, at some point I will try maybe to, to address the email on a podcast, but right there just shows you that one subject. Someone wrote me a book, right? Like a book, okay? In fact, they wrote me a book and then they sent a second email saying, well, here's a condensed version and their condensed version is a small book, okay? So, they, they, no, they, well, it could, no, it could have been, right? But they, they went all in and I do appreciate that they went all in. I do. I mean, that's awesome. Someone's engaging with the content. But the, the, the point is, is that's, 
That's how complicated just that verse could be. Just that verse. Well, if we spent six months on that, by the time we got done with, with the book, by the time we got to the next chapter, nobody would even remember what the book of Jeremiah was about. So I'm trying to, for practical reasons, help us see the big picture. And so therefore, we're try- we are trying to condense it and try to follow the schedule of the, Bi- of the Bible study uh, guide. So that's what we're trying to do. But that means there's going to be chapters that all we can really do is kind of get a, a basic overview. So we're going to approach chapter four First and foremost, for looking at one concept, right? Seeing how that concept is described in the chapter. And while we're doing that, we may take note of some of the other issues going on, okay? So, according to one source, according to one source, in the book of Jeremiah, over 40 times, this is according to one source, over 40 times, Jeremiah calls for God's people to return to the Lord over 40 times. Now, anyone participating in the Bible study exercise, I don't know if I'm going to make this an assignment, but feel free to go through the entire book of Jeremiah, finding every time he calls them to return to him. Now, this, this is a perfect time for this chapter, right? Because we have seen how bad Judah and Israel has been, right? We saw all of that figurative language to describe how bad they have been. Now, because we've seen that, it's always important. Conviction should lead to confession, and confession should lead to what? Change, right? Conviction should lead to confession, which should lead to change, right? Now, some may say repentance, but repentance, if you're confessing it, then repentance is first and foremost a change of mind. So confession is going to be dealt with repentance because you're acknowledging what? Hey, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I know I'm wrong, right? And of course, change can be a part of that as well, but you get the idea. I just want to use it that way. Conviction should lead to Confession and confession should lead to change. Now that change, let's let's just be let's be br- brutally honest. Will the change ever be anywhere close to perfect? No. Will the change even be consistent? No. Any anyone that tells you it will, it's just it's just if a pastor, because I know as a young pastor I would preach it this way because it's just the way you're taught. Hey. Stop acting this way, change, and and the expectation is, stop, not only can you do it, you will do it, you better do it, and if you don't do it, you're probably not saved. That's how it's typically preached. Well, I hate to say it, and nobody wants to admit it, and I know this is kind of, it it feels like a, a kind of a, a, a message of defeat instead of one of victory, but all the call to change, it, it, we, have to take, we have to understand it at least somewhat in a correct way, yes? Is it going to be perfect? No. Is it going to be permanent? No. It's not going to be any of those things. So, so I know then what, what would be kind of the question. Well, then why should we uh, try? Well, it's what we're called to do. And, and, all, and I would just point to you over and over and over if you go through the Old Testament over and over and over, 
Do they get convicted by their lifestyle? Do they confess it? Do they make changes? And almost inevitable, what happens? They go right back. Yeah, they revert. Right? They, they go right back to the same sin. Now, typically in most American churches, what do we say? How do, how do most American churches handle the fact that in the Old Testament, they would get convicted, they would confess, they would change, but then they would return? What, how do we typically in the American church explain that occurrence? We, we claim they don't have the Holy Spirit. Remember, we've, in, our, in our study on the Holy Spirit, we spent 60, well, I don't even know how many messages on the Holy Spirit. And we talked about that wrong assumption. And we looked at a number of scriptures from Grudem's systematic theology that clearly showed people in the Old Testament had the Holy Spirit. Because what did David say even after he committed adultery? In his confession in Psalm 51. Take not your spirit from me. He didn't say he'd lost it. He didn't say it was not there. Okay, so everyone seems to forget that, right? Okay, but that's our go-to answer. Well, they didn't have the Holy Spirit, implying then what? Well, well, you could could almost go there. But it, it implies that now we are not like them. Well, the problem is we got 2,000 years of church history, and what have we seen in church, his, in church history? Just like them. I know nobody wants, I know, I know that doesn't preach good. I know that won't get the, I know that won't get the crowd going. Well, yeah, I don't do that anyway. I know that's not going to get the, amen, it's, nobody's going to do anything, right? Okay? He usually says, oh, me. He, he doesn't say, he always says, oh, me, right? So he's more honest than the rest of you, okay, right? But, but the point is, the reality is, we know, like, I know nobody wants to admit it, but we all know conviction, we all know confession, and we all know the desire to change. But we know the inevitable reality that over and over and over, we fall short and we go back and we go back and we go back and we go back. But that doesn't mean we just ignore when God calls to return what he calls for and what he tries to do, all right? According to one source, not only is over 40 times in the book of Jeremiah does God call for his people, he describes this return and what it's like. He uses images or figurative language. Imagine that, all right? So the first one they point to, I'm going to go with the ones they point to first, right? Now, they give one, two, three, four, five. They give us five. Now, this gets us all the way to verse 22. How many verses is in chapter 4? All right. All right, 31. So that means... There's a large section there that we may not get to tonight, but that means, so we're going to see what we can do to try to get there. They, obviously, they're only focused on the image, right? We will look at the image and see if we think it it fits or doesn't fit, and then we'll look at everything else going on in the particular chapter. Does that sound like a plan? All right, everybody ready to work fast? All right, let's start in chapter 4, verse 1. If thou wilt return... All right, there's, there's the call to return, right? How many times supposedly used in the book? Over 40, right? Okay, if, so there's one. We've already seen that uh, a couple of times in chapter 2 and 3, did we not? 
Yeah, we talked about it this morning, right? If thou wilt return, O Israel, saith the Lord. What's the next word? Return unto me. Okay, that's two times in what? One verse. Return unto me, and if thou and if thou wilt put away thine abominations out of my sight, then shalt thou not remove. And thou shalt swear the Lord liveth in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness, and the nations shall bless themselves in him, and him shall they glory. For thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem. Here comes the, the kind of the figurative language. You ready? What's the first image? Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. The first figurative language is a figurative language of what? What does it mean to break up thy, thy the way the uh, King James says, fallow ground? How's the NIV? Okay, break up your unplowed ground. So the first image is that of plowing. That of plowing. This is how they uh, state it in this book. And for those listening online with the word by uh, Warren W. Worsby, hard hearts need plowing up so they can receive the seed of the word and bear fruit. So this is kind of interesting that if you think about, now, you could talk about the, now, if we were looking this logically, I'm just looking at the imagery, right? But the first thing he says to do, obviously, in verse 1 is what? No, in chapter 1. Turn to return, right? And then next, put away the abomination. So we could, like, we could go in order, I understand. But what I, but, so I don't want to, I, in other words, I don't want, I can do this the way most would preach this and just ignore those words there and then immediately say, well, when you return to God, the first thing that you need to focus on is plowing up your unplowed heart. The only problem is the context has other things that come before it, right? So I don't want to ignore that context. But for, for our focus, I do want to focus on, I do think it's interesting that he says to break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Now that unplowed ground would have to be the unplowed ground of what? Now, the book kind of gave an idea of what they think it is. Remember, it's figurative language. What, what ground are you plowing up? Everybody says it's the heart? What, does everybody agree? Why, why, why does everybody think it's the heart? I'm just curious on how, you're interp- how you are processing this imagery. All right, obviously, it's you, okay? Well, uh, why, why, uh, I don't know anything about... Fo- hey. Okay, well, hang on, right, right before we get there. Okay, right before we get there. So just a couple of things. So first, what do we know about unplowed ground? Because I don't know anything, so I need someone to tell me what... Oh, it's hard. Okay, it's hard. Okay, and what can you not do in unplowed ground? You can't plant. Okay, all right, we're getting somewhere, right? So now the image is obviously a hard ground that nothing can be planted. Now, over and over, up to this point, God has been giving them the words through Jeremiah, right? And he said, we talked about it this morning, that they were basically... And I hate to be blunt, but this is the way he kind of described it. They're like a prostitute walking around flaunting everything they got with no shame. They don't think they did anything wrong. They're not embarrassed by anything they do. That would be a hard 
heart, right? So I think we can see why, well, it has to be the heart because nothing else would seem to make sense, all right? And then uh, Stephen was going to offer some kind of scriptural support for this. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart. Now, that's another figurative language, but clearly we know what he's referring to now, right? So the heart, the heart has to be plowed up. The heart has to be broken up. Now, this is interesting. Okay, oh, man, I thought we were going to make it through this chapter. We may never make it through this chapter. Okay. All right. Now I just realized what a mess I'm in here. Okay. Right. But because this raises, this, there's so many theological issues that happen here, right? Okay. So let's go through this again. Now I know, I, and it's already hard enough for me to read through one and two as fast as I did. That's, that's breaking, it's, that's breaking my heart. Okay. That's painful. Okay. Right. That's, that's, ugh, all right. But I'm trying not to deal with anything there because there's plenty of issues going on there. But for thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. There's really two parts here, right? The, um, this uh, this uh, Bible, which is what is the Christian Standard Bible, it, it does it this way. For this is what the Lord says to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. Break up the unplowed ground do not sow among thorns. So there's two concepts here. Now, the, the book didn't even mention here, at, at, you know, what the not planting among thorns, what that even has a reference to. Okay, but that's okay. Obviously, we can think of probably something in the New Testament where this language is kind of being utilized. But here's the question I have. Who is directed to do the work? Judah, all right, that they are to break up the ground. Now, this raises lots of theological issues, right? How do we break up the ground? Like, hey, it, it's, be- it's, it's beautiful to, mem- to memorize that verse, right? It's beautiful to memorize that verse. There's been entire books written on this verse, right? There's been entire books. And uh, this book, these books, th- these uh, verses have been used a lot and making a reference to revival, right? Break up the unplowed ground. Now, if I, I, I should almost make an assignment for the Bible study exercise. How do you do that? How do you accomplish that? Anybody got a study Bible? Well, do they offer any suggestions on exactly how you're supposed to break up the unplowed ground? Do they have any suggestion in how this is supposed to occur? All right. Okay, uh, this one just says, uh, fallow ground with soil long unattended and abandoned to wild growth. Ground that had lain fallow too long needed to be broken up, cultivated again. Jeremiah and Hosea use this image to picture the need for spiritual renewal. Okay. Okay. That's, that's good. But what does it mean to break it up? Like, how do you do that? So it, does, it doesn't really say. It just says, yeah, nobody, like, how do, you, how do you pull it off? What do you think the typical answers would be? What do you think? Come on, what do you think the typical... If someone came to you tonight and said, hey, I've been reading Jeremiah, and I, I know that I'm as messed up as they are, 
I want to plow up my unplowed ground. Tell me, how do I do that? I can't leave your house until you tell me. Don't say you would call me because I would just hang up on you, right? Okay? You think prayer accomplishes it, okay? Okay? All right? We always know where all the answers come to in church, right? Okay? What's the answer to every question in church? Okay? Well, when we don't say Jesus, we say pray more and read your Bible more, okay? And go to church more. Oh, and give some more money to the church, right? Isn't that the answers to everything? How do you do it? Okay, right, but they know that that's not, that's God telling them to do it, okay, right? They didn't, God say, ask me to do it. So how? Yeah, see, that's what we would typically say. See, that's where I was going. So I wanted someone to go, well, wait a minute. Wouldn't we typically say God has to be the one to do it? But this is God telling them to do it. Right, well. I think I think maybe maybe is this to is this to drive them to him further? I, all I can say is that I mean, look, because you know, always if you can, now most people would preach a sermon here and say how to plow up the unplowed ground, and guess what it would be? Daily time in God's word. You need a morning devotional time. You need an evening devotional time. You need to listen to sermons. You need to read books on revival. You need to pray. You need to, you need to stop watching TV. You need to stop listening to music. You need to spend time with God. And then, and then everybody would be like, Oh, pastor, I'm so convicted. Oh, I'm so convicted. Thank you for that. Oh man, that was such a good sermon. And then everyone leaves and come back next Sunday. Is their ground broken up? No, after giving it about a month, what are you going to find? People are going to either be ashamed that they didn't do half the things that they were supposed to do in that sermon, or what? Let's be honest. No one's even going to remember the sermon that was preached. So then they were everybody's just wasting their time anyway. I mean, right? I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, the honest. A month later, everybody's going to be right back to where they were. And so either you convince yourself, "Oh, I did it," or you're like, you feel totally discouraged, totally depressed, which is what leads to the deconstruction videos that are so popular because people are like, this whole thing doesn't work. So all I can say, the only thing I know that could even come close to possibly breaking up the ground, obviously is a work of God. I think God has to do it. So I don't know how we understand that because he's telling them to do it. But I think the only thing that could possibly break it up from a, like if I'm looking at a practical point, is the more you are aware of your sin and your failure. Like, like it's not about, hey, I'm going to go do all of these things. It's more of an acknowledgement of how messed up I am, which is what breaks up the heart. In other words, what breaks the heart is the conviction. Right, right. Right. Oh, exactly. Right. And, 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 I know, but they, and, and I know, and they didn't feel bad about it. So, but I'm just saying the only thing I know that could possibly lead to a broken up heart is conviction. That's the only thing I know that can do it. Right. Now, now that's not a good, that's not a, that's not a great answer because the answer is, Hey, your heart's not broken up enough. 
Okay, I need you to go commit some serious sin until you're broken. And then, like, that's not the answer. Okay, what's the solution, Pastor? A, a weekend in Vegas. Okay, okay. And then when you <laughs> and then when you come back completely guilty, you'll be like, woohoo, my heart is broken up now. Right? Okay, that, that can't be the answer. But it is a difficult question to consider, right? I mean, I, I wish I could just say, hey, guys, pray more and read your Bible more, and then your heart's going to be broken up, and then you, 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 you'll be great. And then what else does he say? Don't, uh, don't, or break up your heart. Break up the follow ground. And what's the next thing? So not among thorns. Now, what does that mean? What do you think that means? Okay, yeah, sometimes the thorn, the thorns can, okay, that's a good point. Sometimes the thorns can refer to the lost. So then what does that mean? Don't go plant among, stay away from lost people? Okay, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, right. You could, yeah, we could go there. I'm just saying that it's beautiful poetic language. It is a beautiful picture, right? Hey, there's that hard ground. Go plow that up. And everybody's like, amen. Right. Hey, don't go plant among the thorns. And everybody says, amen. But then while everybody's leaving the church, you stop them and go, what exactly does that mean? What are you talking about? I just say amen to your sermons. I don't care what it means, okay? But, like, I, I don't have good answers. I don't have good answers. Now, we do know, does everybody remember the parable Jesus told? A hard ground, what happens? Okay, the seed can't be planted, right? Remember, the Satan comes as a bird and t- carries it off, okay? But sometimes it can be planted, if, but it's not very deep soil, right? And it's about, and what happens? The thorns choke it out. Right? Okay, everybody remember that? Everybody knows what I'm talking about. I just don't want to go spend all time looking at it. So that seems to imply, the, the, and there, what do the thorns represent there? The cares of the world. Yeah, the cares of the world, right? So I think the point is, is the ground needs to be broken up, and then we need to plant God's word deep in us uh, in, a way, in a way that it's not choked out by the thorns, whoever the thorns represent. But that, I mean, it could be, right. Yeah, there's a, there's a do this and don't do this kind of a concept. So, but uh, I, I'm just saying that I wish, I wish that was easier, easier understood, but it should at least get everyone to think about it, all right? So there's the first kind of image. Now, the book skips the next one, and I don't know why it, well, no, actually it does. It, okay, they do it a different way. Okay, they're going to mention it. I thought they skipped it. So the first image is what? Plowing and planting. Plowing and planting. Plow up the heart and plant and a place where there's no thorns. All right? The best I can say, the heart needs to be broken up and we need to plant God's word in a place where it's not going to be choked out by thorns. That's the best we can come up with. And Now, exactly how that all works, I don't know. I, I, agree, I tend to agree with Bobby. I think God's the only one who can ultimately break the heart, but this is God telling them to do it, I know. 
But I, I do believe conviction can break the heart. But there's a lot there. I wish I, wish I could just say, read your Bible more, pray more, and, and it's going to happen. But it, it obviously doesn't work that way. Okay? But what's the next image? We got the image of plowing and planting. What's the next image? All right, obviously we could, it, it, it literally names it, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Um, I'm going to go with the way they describe it, surgery. The first one is plowing and planting, and the next one is surgery, right? And now listen again how it says, circumcise yourselves. Right, at least uh, in this Bible, what, how does the King James Circumcise yourself. Once again, the emphasis is placed on whom? Us. Or Judah, right. Okay, right. Um, that, that, like from a theological standpoint, you have lots of issues with this, right? This is all like, you do it, you do it. It's very, If I remember we worked on the series, we stopped the series here. I've got to get back to it on the podcast. But we were doing a series on law and gospel, these passages are what? If anybody remembers that series, these are law. These are law passages. And what do law passages always do? What do law passages always do? They condemn. I don't know about you. When I read chapter 4, I don't walk away feeling any better. I spend more time going, well, wait a minute. How do I plow up my heart? Wait a minute. Okay, where can I plant? How do I plant? What do I plant? Wait a minute. How do I do the surgery? How do I circumcise myself? Right? In fact, from this Bible, it reads this way. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, men of Judah and residents of Jerusalem. Otherwise, my wrath will break out like fire and burn with no one to extinguish it because of your evil deeds. That's like a threat. This has got law written all over it. This has got law written all over it. I know this. If my hope to avoid God's wrath and his fire is me doing the right plowing, the right planting, and the right surgery, just as well go ahead and throw me in hell tonight. I'm in trouble. Now, I do know this. Positionally in Christ, my heart, my, I, it's not hardened, right? I got the right heart. I got the right everything, right? I, I, I got, I, I've got the right circumcision in my position in my practice I don't so it's just it's very law based do this and I know that preachers love why do preachers love law passages well it's easy to preach right anybody can take this passage any any young pastor any young person in bible college like hey you got to preach this coming Sunday and they read this this is, this, is, this is sermon gold, right? You already got the outline. Number one, put away the idols, right? It's just law, just come and tear into them, right? Plow up your heart. Here's three, and now you got the sub points. How do you plow up your heart? You gave me. Pray, read your Bible, 
Go to church, right? Okay, so you're already giving me the sub points. Circumcise your heart. How do you do that? Come up with some sub. Once again, probably it will be what? Pray, read your Bible. Like, that's it. It's the guy. That's all we've got. That's all we've got as Christians, right? We, that's the only ever answer we have to everything, right? Hey, you know the Christian answer. If you get shot three times, pray, read your Bible, go to church. It's like, I think maybe you should go to the doctor, right? Okay, but, I, but I, it's, it, I, obviously I'm using a little hyperbole, but you get the idea, right? So um, how do, I mean, it's, it's not it a reasonable question to ask. How do you circumcise yourself? What would it mean to remove the foreskin of your heart? Now, in some ways, it's kind of saying the same thing, right? A hardened heart. And you could argue cutting away the foreskin so that the the heart is more sensitive. Removing that which would keep away the sensitivity of your heart. In other words, getting rid of the hard ground and that which is not making you sensitive towards the things of God. Now, there may be some practical things there you could do, right? But you know, you can, once again, I think Bobby said it or someone said it very early on when we started the sermon that these would just be external things. We would just be doing external things, right? I know it's talking about the heart, but we would immediately start referring to external things. Okay, well... Okay, uh, I think I'm spending too much time watching TV. I think I'm spending too much time doing this. And so you're going to just start moving all these things. But does that really, does that change the heart? It doesn't change the heart. Yeah, it, 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 it's just external things. So I, 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 do, I do love the idea of, of the surgery, but I just don't know how to perform it. This is what they say. Uh, it is like performing surgery. The Jews put their confidence in external religious ritual and did not let God operate on the heart. He wants true truth deep within the heart. Well, once again, though, they, they have God doing it. This just said, you do it. So I wonder, is this actually designed from a law gospel perspective to make you throw up your hands and go, what do you expect of me? I can't do it. I can't break up my heart. I can't do the circumcision. I need a spiritual circumcision, and that happens, that has to be something God does. Now, I know that raises all kinds of theological issues because then you're putting the blame on God, but I don't know, I don't know how you, you work this, all right? So we've got plowing and planting. We've got performing surgery. Look at verse 5 and 6 and tell me what you find. I'm going to read it in this translation just because it's the one open right here on the pulpit currently. All right, everybody ready? Declare in Judah, proclaim in Jerusalem and say, blow the ram's horn throughout the land. Cry out loudly and say, assemble assemble yourselves and let's flee to the fortified cities. Lift up a signal flag towards Zion. Run for cover. Don't stand still for I'm bringing disaster from the north, a crushing blow. What, What do you think that they are referring to here? They also want you to look at verses 19 through 21. Look at verses 19 through 21 and see if you hear that. And see what you see there, verses 19 through 21. 
Do you get any uh, uh, any better idea? Okay, uh, yeah, uh, verse, uh, uh, we'll look at verse 21. How long must I see the signal flag? See the signal flag there, right? Where's the uh, trumpet? Oh, and verse 19, my anguish, my anguish, I rather than agony. Oh, the pain in my heart, my heart pounds. I cannot be silent for you, my, oh, my soul. I have heard the sound of the ram's horn, the shout of battle. Well, this has military language. So what they refer to this as, this is how they refer to it as, as joining the army, and this is how they describe it. The backslider is serving the enemy, but when he hears the trumpet call, realizes he's a traitor and returns to obey his commander. That this is a, listen to the trumpet horn and assemble yourselves, right? It's like in the military, whenever we would, you know, when, whenever you would hear the, the, the certain calls, you would come down and then assemble yourself, right? Everybody would get in formation and you got to be so far in front of each other. You got to put your arms this way, put your arms this way and then drop and you're in, you assemble yourself, right? You drop into formation, you get in formation. Well, this, they're saying this, the language here is the call to listen to the call, assemble yourselves. The, the signal flag is like the, 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 you know, the, the flag that everyone is to follow and to watch when marching, that that's the idea. Hey, you've been backslidden. You've been going this way. Now return and get yourself in formation. I know the language is not perfect, but let's, I'm going to read it from the King James. What verses did they say to, uh, to go Okay, yeah, six and seven. Right, we'll look, go in verse five. Declare ye in Judah and publish in Jerusalem. So, hey, tell everyone in Judah and Jerusalem, listen up, right? What does it say? Blow ye the trumpet and the land. Cry, gather together and say, assemble yourselves and let us go into the defense cities. Set up the, there's the flag, Right? Towards Zion, retire, stay not, for I will bring evil from the north and a great destruction. And then, it was it 19? Uh, 19 of the King James, my bowels, my bowels, I am painted at my very heart. My heart maketh a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because thou hast heard, O my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Destruction upon destruction is cried, for the whole land is spoiled. Suddenly are my tents spoiled and my curtains in a moment. How long shall the sound of the trumpet. Clearly, it's using the language of war. It's using the language of battle. And they're saying, hey, look, you're over here wandering, because remember, they've been referred to backsliding all throughout chapter 3, right? You've backslidden. Now come and assemble yourselves under the commander and do what? He tells them what to do. What does he tell them to do? And those verses, verse uh, 6, 6, he tells them to flee, retreat. Yeah, in other words, go. You got to get out. But, but they have to do what? Listen to whom? Their commander. What do you do in the military? You assemble yourselves and whose orders do you follow? And nobody, nobody knows how the military works. You, you obey the commander, right? Okay, I mean, some people do, some people don't. Okay, right, but you obey the commander, right? Does everybody get it? All right, so that one's much easier to, uh, to understand. But guess what? Guess what the problem is? It's still what? What kind of language is this? This is law. And it's figurative, but it's law, right? 
Who's supposed to do something? So in this, who, who's supposed to do the plowing and the planting? Well, in their case, them, Judah, us. Who's supposed to do the, what was the second? The surgery, us. And next, who's supposed to run and join the army and obey? Us, right, them. All of that is do something, do something, do something, do something, do something. And I'm just saying we got 2,000 years of church history of people trying to do something, and we got 2,000 years of what? Failure, right? All right, so what's the next one? I'm running out of time, running out of time, going as fast as I can, all right? Okay, well, okay, well, you know, uh, they, they, they skip a bunch here, but we'll go ahead and read it. We'll start in verse 7, okay? Well, just so that we can read it. A lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has left his lair to make your land a waste. Your cities will be reduced to uninhabited ruins. Because of this, put on sackcloth, mourn, and well, for the Lord's burning anger has not turned away from us. The figurative language there is not about them returning. The figurative language there is about what? Who's coming after them? And who's coming after them? A lion from his thicket, a destroyer, right? Okay, a nation is coming against them, right? A nation is coming against them. If this is referring to Judah and Jerusalem, who's the nation? Babylon, all right. So, yeah, remember, we're looking at the figurative language that refers to the returning of, all right? But that is figurative language again, though, right? So then you are left to try. But just please note, the main thing to understand there is just, I understand we can try to figure out exactly who the nation is and we can figure that out and a lot of people can get caught up in it. But the figurative language just wants them to know what? Someone is coming to bring judgment upon you. Everybody got that? Okay. Now, verse 9. Okay, where's the next one? Start. Uh, the next one, well, it's going to be a, a minute. We'll keep reading. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration. The king and the uh, officials will lose their courage. The priests will tremble in fear and the prophets will be scared speechless. Okay, that's all pretty <laughs> strong language, right? I said, oh no, Lord God, you have certainly deceived this people and Jerusalem by announcing you will have peace while a sword is at our throats. All right, let's just stop 410. I don't have time to get into it. It's one of the most controversial, complicated, convoluted passages, maybe in the entire Bible, and nobody has a clue what's going on. All right? First, who seems to be speaking? Jeremiah seems to be speaking. Everyone seems to agree with that. And Jeremiah has a problem with someone. And who's his problem with? He has a problem with God. And what's his problem? You have deceived the people. Why would you do this? Now, how does he think they've deceived the people? Hey, you you told us where we're going to have peace. But now we got a sword at our throat. Why would you deceive us? Anybody got an easy answer on this one? Got lots of emails on this one. A lot of people out there trying to figure it out. Okay, 
Well, there's a couple of ways of looking. Put it this way. No matter how we look at this, we're going to run into problems, all right? I don't have time to get into all of it because, remember, we're supposed to get down with Chapter 4, but obviously this is not working out because you guys keep asking too many questions, okay? All right, but listen, there's just a couple of ways of looking at it. First, false prophets came, and the false prophets, from the, for the most that we can understand, gave a message of what? Peace. Everything's good. Don't listen to Jeremiah. He's out of his mind. Peace. And Jeremiah saying, God, why did you, if those are the prophets, why didn't you do what? Why didn't you stop them? Why would you let them be successful and preach? Who's, who are they listening to? Jeremiah or them? Now, I'm listen, anyone who's ever been in ministry for any length of time, can sometimes want to ask these same questions, right? You're trying to preach the message. You're trying to take the message apart. You got four people in your church, right? And then you'll look at Joel Osteen. 40,000, and you'll be like, hey, God, what gives? And you say, oh, you're not supposed to say that. Jeremiah just did. He's like, well, what gives? And he goes so far to say, God did what? Deceive the people. Because no matter how we like it, could God stop all false prophets? How quickly? He wouldn't even have, he could have the false prophet preach all day. He could just do what? Not have anyone listen. <laughs> right? So he's a little perplexed. So now what some people have said is later on in Jeremiah, I don't have the reference down. Uh, someone sent an email saying, here's a good cross-reference. And it talks about the false prophets and that they went, but God did not send them. So that, hey, God didn't send them. I know that sounds good, but the reality is he didn't stop them either. Okay? Jeremiah seems a little perplexed here, right? But let, let's make it very clear. Sometimes I know within the Christian church, we're not so good at this, but in the Bible, the, the, the people of the Bible don't seem too uh, hesitant to express their emotions, do they? Right? Did Job have a problem saying, I wish I was never born? Now, if, if I say that, you guys are like, oh, how dare you say that? You're so overdramatic. Right? Okay, but Job could. Uh, Elijah wanted to do what? If I go home after church and say, I'm going to sit under the tree and I just want to die. She'd be like, oh, get over it. What's your problem? Well, first, yeah, you know something's bad. I I would sit at the front door saying, I want to go sit under that tree and die, but I'll stay here in the air conditioning. Okay. But the point is when sometimes when people say that we as Christians are like, how dare you say that you don't appreciate the blessings of God and you don't understand how good you've got it. And you don't, and just stop preaching to me and let me vent. Right. Okay. Well, guess what? I think Jeremiah seems a little bothered, doesn't he? Do you feel like he possibly is a little bothered? How does the NIV translate it? How completely you have deceived us. Say, now I, to me personally, I know all the commentaries try to figure it out. To me, the best way to figure it out, this is just my thoughts. It's just a human being 
expressing frustration. I don't know about you. Anyone's been in ministry has probably expressed frustration. Right? Okay, well, you guys may not know. Trust me, you get frustrated sometimes. Right? Trust me. You're like, what is going on? Right? Yes? I, 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 that's what I think is happening here. You, you, can, you can disagree, but I think it's more just that. That's the way I'm going to do so, right? And again, from this Bible, I said, this is, this is obviously Jeremiah. I said, oh no, Lord God, you have certainly deceived this people and Jerusalem by announcing you will have peace while a sword is at our throats. At that time, it will be said to the people under Jerusalem, a searing wind blows from the barren heights in the wilderness on the way to my dear people. It comes not to winnow or to sift. A wind too strong for this comes at my call. Now I will also pronounce judgments against them. Look, he advances like clouds. His chariots are like a storm. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. In other words, they're going to see who's coming against them, and they're going to be like what? We're done. Hey, in other words, God, why did you say we're at peace? Because they're about to see what's coming. And when they see what's coming, they're going to be like, why were we told otherwise? Right? And so you can see the frustration. Now, what happens in verse 14? All right, so now here's the next image of returning to God. Wash the evil from your heart, Jerusalem, so that you will be delivered. How long will you harbor malicious thoughts? They, they describe it as taking a bath. Taking a bath. Now, once again, who's supposed to be doing the action? They are. Now, the, the commentary I got, they describe the taking the bath as confession. Well, I got no problem confessing, but it doesn't say confess. It says, wash it from your heart. How do you wash it from your heart? How do you wash it from your heart? Once again, it comes back to what we're supposed to do. It's very law-based. It's very law-based. Now, I listen, I don't want anyone to walk away going, well, I don't have to do anything. I do believe we need to... Do what we can. I just think that there, there, you're going to have to realize God's got to step in here somewhere. Because if God doesn't step in, I'm telling you, they can do all of the things he said and four chapters later, they'd be right back into the place. How many times did Israel do all of this stuff? Did they confess? Did they repent? Did they tear down idols? They did all of this. Did they read the word? They did all of this over and over. And what happened every single time? Right back, right back. Right back, right back, right back, right back, right back. Every, every single time. All right, I think uh, this one has one more. All right, that was verse 14. We'll just read quickly. Uh, verse 15, For a voice announces from Dan, proclaiming malice from Mount Ephraim, Warn the nations, look, proclaim to Jerusalem, those who besiege are coming from a distant land. They raise their voices against the cities of Judah. They have surrounded like those who guard a field because she has rebelled against me. This is the Lord's declaration. Your way and your actions have brought this on you. This is your punishment. It is very bitter because it has reached your heart. All right, that's some serious stuff, is it not? And then what happens in verse 19? Who speaks, who speaks in verse 19, you think? 
That's Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is all of a sudden like, this is this would be called a lament. Right? My now now the King James says, my bowels, my bow. In other words, deep inside of me, the, this one says, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in agony. Oh, the pain in my heart. My heart pounds. I cannot be silent. For you, my soul, have heard the sound of the ram's horn, the shout of battle. Now, in this case, this instrument, now this is instruments of war, but what are they hearing? They're hearing the ones from the nation coming at them. Now, remember, he just voiced a complaint a little while ago. God, why did you, why did you deceive everyone? And now, he knows how bad it is, and he's, now what? He's broken. He's, he's doesn't know what to do. What happens in verse 20? What does he say? Disaster after disaster is reported because the whole land is destroyed. Suddenly my tents are destroyed. My tent curtains in a moment. How long must I see the signal flag and hear the sound of the ram's horn? Most likely that's a reference to the, 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 the horn and the flag of the enemy. Most likely. At least that's the way I'm reading it. I could be wrong, but that's the way I'm reading it. All right, now look at verse 22. For my people are fools. They do not know. Now it sounds like it goes back to God. See how weird that can get, trying to keep up with it? They have not known me. That, I don't think that's Jeremiah saying they haven't known him. Do you agree? Or, or oh, everybody got silent. Do, do everybody agree with me here? Okay, I hope you agree. Okay, is there disagreement? All right, making sure. For my people are fools. They do not know me. They are foolish children without understanding. They're skilled in doing what is evil, but they do not know how to do what is good. Now, this one does not necessarily say return, but the commentary puts this one uh, that to return is like growing up. So it's like growing up because he refers to them as children who don't know, right? Believers should be childlike, but not childish. Backsliders are fools like disobedient children who are only hurting themselves. And so there he tells them to grow up. So what is all the images of returning to God? Plowing and planting. Surgery. Okay, basically joining the army and following the commander. Next. Wash or take a bath. Next. Okay, do we need to go through these? Is that, is everybody still with me? Okay, let's go through them again. All right, all right. Verses one through three was the planting and the plowing. Everybody got that? Okay, the next one was surgery was verse four, yes? Joining the army, listening to the commander, following the right flag, five through six. I think 1921, even though it mentions it, I think, that's, I think that those flags are referencing the Babylonians personally. So I'm just gonna go with five and six. All right, next Taking a bath or washing yourself is verse 14. And then growing up would be verse, we just read it, 22. Growing up, verse 22. Everybody got that? All right. That is how we are to, well, that what they say is how we're to return to the Lord. I, I think all of that is so law-based, I don't know. All right. And so we, we've just got, we've got 23 to 31. Let's just read it and we'll stop. Right, everybody ready? I'm going to read from this translation just because it's right here. I looked at the earth, and it was formless and empty. I looked to the heavens, and their lights was gone. Right? 
I looked at the mountains and they were quaking. All the hills shook. I looked and there was no human being and all the birds of the sky had fled. I looked and the fertile field was a wilderness. All the cities were torn down because of the Lord and his burning anger. Now, just stop right here. Quickly, just a quick theology lesson. Many of you are familiar with what's called the gap theory, right? Right? The gap theory says that there's a gap between what two verses? Genesis 1 and 2. And they say that Genesis 1-1, we don't know when that happened. It could be 27 billion years ago, 50 billion years ago, 100 billion years ago. We don't know, right? And then what? somewhere between verse 1 and 2, something happened. There was this great creation, everything was wonderful, and then judgment happened. Horrible judgment, right? And then in verse 2, Genesis 1-2, between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, everybody knew Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, okay, right? The gap theory, right? All right, there's a gap between verse 1 and verse 2, right? What happens in verse 2? Just read it, read it real quick. Genesis 1-2. The, the earth was void. The, the very language used right here, right? Okay, so what people do is say, hey, there was this judgment. Verse 2 describes the earth after the judgment, and then God recreates everything. And then they go to passages like this saying, here, this describes the judgment. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my entire life. This has nothing to do with Genesis 1-2. Nothing. Anyone who tells you that have lost their ever-living mind. Okay? That's like, you can't, you know what, that, that, that's what I call death by concordance. Just because you can look up different verses that have the same language doesn't mean that they are connected. All right? This has nothing to do with Genesis 1-2. Does everybody understand that? Does it use the same language? Yes. But what's this language to indicate? The totality of the destruction of the coming in Babylonians. And it's using a little bit of what kind of language? A little bit of hyperbole or figurative language, yes? All right, okay, just everyone understand that, all right? All right, we stopped reading a what verse? Uh, okay, we'll go to 20, we'll, we'll just go to 24. I looked at the mountains and they were quaking. All the hills shook. I looked at, I looked and there was no human being. All the birds of the sky had fled. I looked and the fertile fields was a wilderness. All the cities were torn down because of the Lord and his burning anger. For this is what the Lord says. The whole land will be a desolation, but I will not finish it off. Because of this, the earth will mourn. The skies above will grow dark. I have spoken, I have planned, and I will not relent or turn back from it. Verse 29, every city flees at the sound of the horsemen and the archer. They enter the thickets and climb among the rocks. Every city is abandoned. No inhabitant is left. And you, devastated one, what are you doing that you dress yourself in scarlet, that you adorn yourself in gold jewelry, that you enhance your eyes with makeup? You beautify yourself for nothing. Your lovers reject you. They intend to take your life. I hear a cry like a woman in labor, a cry of anguish like one bearing her first child. The cry of daughter, the cry of daughter Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hands. Woe is me for my life is weary because of the murderers. Now what I would say is this. All of those verses that tell them how to return, 
do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. They end up where? Meaning, I will argue they couldn't. Because we can't. I can give every Christian in the world all of those rules. Return this way, return this way, return this way. We can't. What's our only hope? Mercy, grace, gospel. I'm telling you, it's just, am I saying when you go into sin, just do whatever you want? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that you can try to return all day, but until your sinful nature is gone, your return is always, it's going to always be messed up. You're always going to find yourself in some kind of sin. I'm not, by all means, get rid of the idol. By all means, plow up the ground. By all means, try to do those things, but you're going to have a hard time even trying to clearly articulate how you do those things. Agreed? All right. We'll stop there. There's chapter four. As fast as I could. Woo! We were moving, weren't we? We tried. Okay. Look at that. All right. We, we accomplished something. Now, if we, if, we can, if we have church on Wednesday, we'll try to do chapter five, maybe chapter five and six. I don't know if we can do two chapters. That may be getting way carried away, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see. All right. We'll see. All right. All right. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, we... I think the only thing any of us in this room can say is we are just as much a sinner as Judah and Jerusalem and Israel was. We're no different than them. And Lord, we hear that call to return and we want to return, but Lord, we can we will never be able to return the way that that is calling us to return. We will fall short over and over. Lord, convict us of our sins so that we will Do what we can, but our only hope is not what we can do, but what your son did. Our only hope is who we are in him. Let us find comfort in that and let that motivate us to do what we can and try to move closer to you and further away from sin. And we ask this in Jesus' name. God's people said...